Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Isaiah 53, beginning to read at verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The second reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 12. That can be found on page 1080, and we're reading verses 37 to 46. So John chapter 12, 37 to 46. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet, at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who has sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. David, thank you very much indeed. Please do keep your Bibles open in front of you. And uh, something else you might find particularly useful would be to turn to the back of the order of service and there's an outline there so you'll see where I'm going in the next few moments and uh, I'm going to pray for us that God would speak to us through uh, his word the Bible now so um, with your Bible open let's pray together Heavenly Father we've, we've sung only just now that the scriptures the Bible are sort of urgent that it is your word to us we pray that you'd um, help us to believe that and uh, not to sort of just um, Uh, come to the Bible now, uh, very familiar with it, uh, uh, as if it's just any other book, 
But we pray that uh, we would hear your voice and that you would uh, speak to us powerfully and that we would live in the light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you about Bill. Bill was a, a lovely gentleman. I say, I say was because he died some years back. Uh, he was a neighbour of ours, Caroline and mine, when we lived elsewhere. Uh, Bill knew that I was a vicar, and from time to time when we were pottering around the garden, uh, Bill and I would chat about all sorts of things, all, all manner of things, and, and sometimes the conversation would turn to Jesus. And on one occasion, uh, Bill said gently, and not in an aggressive way at all, he wasn't that kind of character, he said, you know, if God performed a miracle so that I could see it, then I'd believe. Uh, Let me tell you about Steve, very different. Steve was a colleague of mine from my days in the newspaper business business way back. We were both in our 20s at the time. Steve was intrigued as to why I was a Christian. He'd kind of been brought up to go to church and then and then dumped it all, and so we often talked about Jesus. We were good friends. I was actually his best man. Um, Our relationship could cope with robust, no-holds-barred debates, and as a result, sometimes the hyperbole got rather ramped up, and in one particularly lively exchange, Steve said, okay, Paul, if there's a pot of gold on my doorstep when I get home, then I'll become a Christian. Now, in their different ways, Bill and Steve both wanted the same thing. They, they, they both wanted a miracle. They, they both wanted to see a miracle for themselves, with their own eyes, in order for them to believe. It, but it's not just inquirers and skeptics who want that sort of thing. Some Christians are of a mind that if only we could reproduce the miracles of Jesus today, then more people would become Christians. Now, let me take you back to the 1980s and 1990s. Because that approach was championed by a popular leader called John Wimber, who wrote a book called Power Evangelism. And in the book, Wimber made a distinction between regular dialogue evangelism and power evangelism, between natural and supernatural evangelism. Uh, Normal, sort of natural, conversational evangelism is probably what you and I do all the time, you know, talking about Jesus. And then there was power evangelism, where if we could reproduce the spiritual works of Jesus today, Then, said Wimber and those who followed him, we'd be sure to see more people become Christians. Well, certainly my friends Bill and Steve said they would if they saw a miracle today. And it does seem to be a very sound argument, doesn't it? If only we could reproduce the miracles of Jesus, people would become Christians. Well, it all seems very sound as an argument until we read chapter 12 of John's Gospel and verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Isn't that striking? Here are people in Jesus' day, people who saw all Jesus' miracles, and still they didn't believe in him. And look, Jesus didn't perform his miracles in secret. He did them, verse 37, in their presence. Uh, There were no smoke smoke and mirrors. He he wasn't in a specially designed studio with props and sleight of hand to mask what was really going on. No, verse 37, he did them in their presence in the open and still they would not believe. Uh, John records the miracles, at least some of them. Uh, He changed water into wine. He healed a little boy who was dying. He cured instantly a man who was crippled and unable to walk. No physio required, even after years of muscle wastage. He fed a ginormous crowd of well over 5,000 people with just a few fish sandwiches. And at the end of it, everybody felt completely full and satisfied. 
He gave sight to a man who had been born blind. And if all those miracles were not spectacular enough, then as we've seen in these last weeks in John chapters 11 and 12, Jesus raised a dead bloke from the grave. Lazarus was his name. He'd been buried for four days. His flesh had already begun to decompose. He was well and truly dead. And yet Jesus said just two words. He said, come out. And the dead man came shuffling out of his tomb. His hands and feet, you see, were still wrapped with the grave clothes that he'd been buried in. And John chapter 12, verse 37, there were people there to witness that death-defying miracle. They saw it with their very own eyes. So yes, even the raising of Lazarus was, verse 37, done in their presence. Yet, some would still not believe in him. So if they didn't believe in him back then, even though they saw the most remarkable miracle, why would reproducing those miracles, if we could, why would it engender faith today? It's a very striking thing, isn't it? What is going on here? Now, look in a moment, we'll see two things in this passage that tell us why some people don't believe, despite all the miraculous evidence before their eyes. We'll see why people don't believe. But before we do, let me just take a step back before we leap into this and say something about miracles so that you know what I am saying and what I am not saying. First, the miracles of Jesus are presented here so that we would believe. John is very clear about this at the end of his gospel. Uh, Keep uh, your finger or your uh, service order in John chapter 12 and come to the end of the book, John chapter 20 with me, and you'll see that John makes this very clear. John chapter 20, page 1090, right towards the end of the chapter. And we're going to look at John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. John 20 verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. I've already told you the ones that are recorded in the book. But he did loads of others, says John. But these are written, these seven that I've mentioned already, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See what John is saying? These miracles are recorded in my book, says John. I hear precisely to give you the evidence you need to believe in Jesus. He says Jesus is the Christ. He is God's king in God's world. As we read through John's gospel, we realize that Jesus is none other than God himself. That is his claim. And if God turned up among us and walked the planet, we'd expect him to do some pretty spectacular things to prove who he was. Indeed, it would be strange if he hadn't done anything out of this world. So these miracles are here, recorded here, to tell us who Jesus is, so that we'll be able to believe. And because of the the miracles, some people did believe, and many people today believe. We've seen that in the previous weeks. So please note, as we go on this evening, I am not saying that miracles are irrelevant. The whole of John's Gospel is built around these uh, these seven miracles. Jesus did these miraculous signs, these ones recorded, and John wrote them down so that we can have reason to believe. But here's the thing, as we've just seen in John chapter 12, even when miracles occur, it doesn't automatically follow that people will believe. 
Now, when we get that clear, we won't go down the route of thinking that if only we could reproduce the miracles of Jesus, then people would believe. That is simply not the case. Indeed, John has written his gospel so that we can believe. John's point is these miracles written here are all you need. This is evidence enough. Even if you did some other miracles, if people don't believe these ones, they're not going to believe those ones either. So as we turn back to John 12, this all raises the question, how is it that people could even witness the raising of a dead man and still not believe in Jesus? It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's unbelievable they don't believe. Well, look, back in John chapter 12, there are two key phrases in the verses that follow. Look, verse 37, they would not. And then verse 39, they could not. They would not and... They could not. First then, some would not believe. And you'll see that as my first heading, the pride behind unbelief. Again, verse 37, we've seen it already. Even after Jesus has done all these miraculous signs in the presence, they still would not believe in him. And John tells us this refusal to believe in Jesus was predicted. Look at verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What John is saying there is, go back to the prophet Isaiah and you'll understand why some people would not believe despite the miracles. Uh, So that's what we've got to do. Sorry, one last flip back through the Bible and uh, this time to Isaiah. So again, keep your service sheet in John 12 because we're going to come back and come with me to Isaiah chapter 53 and page 740 in the church Bible. You see why we're going here? John said... Go back to Isaiah. Isaiah will explain to you why some people didn't believe even though they saw the miracle. So we're going back to Isaiah 53, which is where he quotes from. And as we land in Isaiah, we've traveled back in time about 600 years before Jesus. And remember, we're going back to Isaiah to understand why some people will not believe despite seeing miracles. And Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1 is the verse that John quotes. But before we look at it, please understand that whenever a New Testament writer quotes a verse from the Old Testament, they quote it in its context. They understand the whole passage. So we need to look at the whole passage to understand this. So chapter 53 and verse 1. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the the work of God, the mighty work of God. Allow me to put it like this. This is a bit unrefined, but stay with me. It's as if the Lord Almighty rolls up his sleeves as he gets to work, and as he rolls up his sleeve, he bears his arm. He shows his strength. And so what we're going to read in this chapter is the Lord at work in his mighty power. And it's all about Jesus, and it's all about Jesus' death. Because it's in Jesus and his death on the cross that we see the most mighty work of God. And the surprising thing here as we read on is that the mighty arm of God, the almighty work of God, doesn't look very powerful at all. That's the big theme running through. Look at verse 2. He grew up like a tender shoot. See, just like a little green shoot that will push its way up through the soil in the spring and will look very weak and vulnerable, that's how Jesus came to us. In a few weeks' time at Christmas, we'll be remembering exactly this. Jesus was born as a baby. He arrived in this world the way, well, everyone else does. 
Now, that's not what you expect of God, is it? If I were making up the story of God coming to earth, I'd have him arrive in a blaze of glory, I don't know, in a, in a spaceship or something. But no, he came as a tiny, vulnerable baby, like a tender shoot, verse 2. But it's not just his beginnings, his arrival that was so very ordinary and unspectacular. Second half of verse 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah says, in advance of when Jesus comes, Jesus was nothing much to look at. Physically, he was not only like every other human being, but physically, he wasn't even a particularly impressive or good-looking specimen of the human race. Very plain to look at. Now, I don't know what um, picture of Jesus you have in your mind's eye, if you have one at all. If you were brought up watching the Hollywood blockbusters of yesteryear, you might well have a picture in your mind of Jesus with blue eyes and and flowing blonde locks of hair, a good-looking white Caucasian. Well, he certainly wasn't that. And according to Isaiah, he wasn't attractive at all. There was nothing in his appearance to make us want to follow him. So he didn't have muscles on his muscles. He didn't have the physique of a bodybuilder. And he wouldn't have made it in the fashion industry when you look at him anyway. Nothing in his appearance to make us desire him, verse 2. Is that what you expect of God? Of course not. If you or I to make up the story of God coming to earth, we'd present him as a hunk of a man if he was a man at all. He'd be strikingly good-looking. What's more, you'd expect everything to go well for him. But no, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. If you've read the Gospels, you'll know that at times Jesus didn't have two pennies to rub together. He had nowhere to call his home. Jesus didn't have a permanent address. He was Jesus of no fixed abode. He didn't have everything this world affords. Of course, his life ended in the most undignified, humiliating, dishonorable death. See, halfway through verse 4, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. And verse 5, he was pierced as his hands and feet were nailed to a cross. Verse 5, he was crushed physically, emotionally, spiritually crushed. Verse 5, he died suffering a terrible punishment. Do you see the point? Jesus didn't look very impressive at all. Not in his arrival on this planet, he came as a baby. Not in his form, he looked very ordinary. Not in his life, he didn't live in a palace or drive a Mercedes-Benz. And certainly not in his death on a Roman cross. And here's the most surprising point. Jesus looked particularly weak at the precise moment when the Lord was bearing his arm most powerfully. Precisely when the Lord was about the most powerful work on the cross, at that moment, Jesus looked crushed, broken, stricken, afflicted. And so, Isaiah 53 and verse 3, he was despised, rejected, and certainly not esteemed. Of course, when the Lord reveals to us what was happening on the cross... Well, then we see that it was very powerful indeed. Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. 
Jesus' death was a substitutionary sin-bearing death. He was dying in my place. He was taking the punishment for my sin. He was restoring my relationship with God. His life and death was very powerful indeed. The arm of the Lord, the most powerful work of the Lord, may look weak, but it was in fact spectacularly mighty. And when that is revealed to me by God, well then of course I want to follow him. But when I see just a weak man dying a sorry death, well then of course I don't want to follow him. Even, and this is the big point, we're getting back to John 12 in a moment now, even when I see him perform some miracles along the way, if to me much of his life and especially the end of his life was a spectacular defeat, then I'll not see him as much more than a heroic failure. And who wants to follow a failure? So do you see as we turn back to John chapter 12, John says, verse 37, despite Jesus' miracles, they would not believe in him. And Isaiah has explained why. It's because there was so much about Jesus that looked weak and ordinary. And especially the cross. And if you've been here these last weeks, that is precisely what Jesus has been speaking about in John chapter 12. The cross. He's been talking about his death. That's been the focus of the entire chapter. In verse 24, he explained that unless a seed falls to the ground, it won't produce many seeds. Like the seed of a plant, he needed to be buried in the ground to die in order for there to be a great harvest. He must die for others to follow him. But who wants to follow a man who has to die to get a following? No one wants to follow a weakling, a failure, We love to follow people who are powerful. We love to follow people who are fantastic. Who gets the biggest following on Instagram? Anybody know? I'll tell you because I looked it up this week. Cristiano Ronaldo, 188 million followers. Ariana Grande, 166 million. I like her. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, 161 million. Selena Gomez, no idea who she is, 160 million. Kim Kardashian, heard about her, 151 million. I could go on because I've got the list on, uh, on, on, on on the internet. I don't need to go on with the list, though. You see the point? Sportsmen, singers, actors, beautiful people. We want to follow successful, good-looking, powerful people. Not a weak, ordinary-looking guy who dies a shameful and disgraceful death. Well, again, we saw it last week. We saw how Jesus was teaching that the cross displayed God's glory. And then the crowd spoke up. Do you remember verse 34? The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. Ah, the Christ. Oh, yeah, that's who we want. Someone who will remain forever. We're looking for a Christ, a saviour, a king, who will rule forever. Verse 34, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What's all this talk about the Son of Man being lifted up on a cross? We're not interested in him. See the point? Even if you could reproduce the most spectacular miracles today, some people still would not believe. Why? Because belief only comes through the cross, when we understand the cross. And people don't want the cross. They don't want a suffering Messiah, and they don't want to follow in a suffering way. We don't want that because the cross forces us to acknowledge that we are sinful failures. And who wants to believe that? You mean I've got to admit that I'm, that I'm sinful in order to follow Jesus? I don't want to admit that. The cross confronts us with our guilt. No, no, I'm not guilty. I've made some mistakes, but I'm not that bad. 
Coming to the cross is a deeply humbling experience that compels us to to admit that we need rescuing. Why? I don't want to be rescued. I want to do it myself. So do you see that some would not believe because of their pride? I don't want to go the way of Jesus. I, I want some other saviour. Something more spectacular. But not something where I've got to admit that I'm a failure and I'm guilty and I'm sinful. Secondly, and the next two points are much shorter, you'll be pleased to know, some could not believe the power behind unbelief. Verse 39. For this reason, they, they could not believe. Could not See, in verse 37 and 38, we've, we've seen from a human perspective why people don't believe in Jesus despite his miracles. Now, here in verses 39 and 40, we see why they don't believe from a divine perspective. And again, John points to Isaiah. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he, and the he here is God, He has blinded their eyes and deafened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. God blinds hearts. God deafens spiritual ears so that people can't see or understand and therefore won't turn and be healed. Now look, I guess that grates a bit. I'm guessing that reading those verses, a number of us, if not all of us, feel very uncomfortable. But before you think about why you don't like this, see how this clearly puts God in control. God is sovereign in his universe. He's not subject to the women decisions of human beings. See, here were a bunch of unbelieving leaders thinking that they were sitting in judgment on God. We'll decide whether we believe or not. No, I don't like that. Isaiah tells us that God sits in judgment on us. We may think that we're making up our mind uh, on God, but Isaiah says, as you refuse to acknowledge the evidence before you and reject the Son, I am blinding your eyes to the truth. Uh, This is a, a severe warning for those who persistently hold out against God. I have to say, as I've been reading this, I fear for people in church who week after week don't turn to Jesus. Now look, don't misunderstand me. If you're inquiring and exploring into who Jesus is, uh, this is precisely the right place to come. Thanks for coming. Please keep coming back. Let me assure you, you are very welcome here. And we will not put any undue pressure on you. We believe that you should have space and time to think these things through and investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. But there comes a point when you'll have heard more than enough evidence when you've been confronted with the clear evidence to tell you that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that you and I are rebelliously rejecting him and that we need to be saved by his death on the cross. And then, refusing to believe the evidence will be a blinding condemnation by God. And that's exactly what some people say to me. They say, you know, I just can't see it. I can't see it, they say. Well, no, they can't. They're in the dark. Not because it's confusing and complicated. The gospel is remarkably straightforward, but because when we're in the dark, we cannot see anything. They're in the dark because they won't come to the light. That's what Jesus says. Look at verse 46. 
I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. It's why he said what he said at the end of last week's passage, verse 36, put your trust in the light while you have it. See what he's saying? Turn to Jesus and you'll see. Yeah, you might feel as if you're in the dark. Turn to Jesus. Then you'll see. It'll be a light bulb moment. It'll be like the light has been switched on. You'll know where you're going in life. You'll know what life is all about. And you'll certainly, this is the key thing, be able to see that Jesus and his death on the cross is the most glorious life-giving moment that ever happened in the history of mankind. Yes, the miracles are crucial for us to see who Jesus is. But for anybody to become a Christian, it's not all down to seeing miracles. It's about understanding the cross and turning to the cross. So some would not believe the pride behind unbelief. Some could not believe the power behind unbelief. And thirdly from this section, many would not confess belief, the problem behind private belief. Look at verse 42. Yet at the same time, that is at the same time as these people who who wouldn't believe and couldn't believe, Yet at the same time, even among the leaders, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. We've um, seen already through these chapters how many people did openly believe in Jesus. This evening we've seen that some would not believe despite the evidence of the miracles. Now this third category of people, those who believed but privately. They wouldn't confess publicly that they believed in Jesus. It was um, 20 years ago now when I worked for a church in London. I uh, had the particular responsibility for helping Christians to be Christians in the workplace I ran a weekend away for Christians in the workplace and one guy in his early 50s came along, let's call him Peter. He'd been part of the church for years and years. He could clearly articulate how and when he became a Christian. He attended church every week. He was part of a a small group Bible study. He was on the church council. As we broke into small discussion groups on the Saturday morning, having arrived on the Friday night of this weekend away, he rather bravely, I thought, said to the whole group, I've been working in the same place now for 20 years and no one at work knows I'm a Christian. Isn't that amazing? In one sphere of his life, he was a private believer. That's what we have here in verse 42. And why were these people so reticent to own the name of Christ? Well, verse 43, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Verse 42, they feared that they'd be put out of the synagogue. The synagogue for a Jew was was heart of the community. Uh, Being banished from the synagogue was not just uh, to be sort of um, no longer allowed to go to church, but it was to be cut off, excluded, left out, ostracized of society, really. And it was to be shamed. And verse 43, they loved praise from men more than they praised from God. That's the problem with with their private belief. They wanted people to speak well of them. Now, does that ring any bells? Even if most people know you're a Christian, are there groups of people who don't yet know that you're Christian? Areas of your life where you're not prepared to come clean because your greatest concern is that people like you and speak well of you. 
two weeks ago, we saw that to be a servant of Jesus means to follow Jesus to the cross, to be ready to die for him if needs be, to be ready to be cut off from friends and family if necessary, ready to be shunned at work or school or university or in our family or with our friends. Look, I know some in this very church family who have paid a huge price, a huge price to be a follower of Jesus. They've actually had to leave their home and family. Yet there are some, some here among us who, who want to keep quiet about their faith in Christ. It could well be that you love the praise of others more than you love the praise of Jesus. Well, look at verse 36. Put your trust in the light. Come out of the darkness. Put Jesus first. Well, look, my time has gone. Whether you're a, um, a private believer or an unbeliever at the moment, look at the miracles of Jesus, but also look at the cross and see at the cross not a weak man spectacularly failing, but a glorious God wonderfully saving. And those of us who've been public believers for many years, look again at the cross and point people to the cross. For the cross is where the mighty power of God is displayed. And it is glorious. And it's what people need to see and understand if they're to become followers of Jesus as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we've seen today that you don't do things the way that we would do things. You sent your son as a little baby, a tender shoot. There was nothing spectacular or wonderful in him to look at in terms of his physical appearance. And then he died on a cross which looked so weak. But we thank you that there is strength and power, mighty to save. And we pray, please, that you'd help us to either understand that for the first time tonight, or if we already know it and have known it for a long time, to rejoice in it afresh and to want to praise you for the rest of our days. Amen.